Well, once upon a time, there was this young little girl, and she had a question for her mother. And she asked her mother, Mom, where do human beings come from? Where do people come from? And so her mom is eager to tell her the answer, and she says, well, sweetie, God created human beings. God created Adam and Eve, and then they had kids, and then they had kids, and then they had kids, and then you and I ended up here. This little girl, she's not satisfied with this answer. So she goes and asks her dad. She goes to her dad. She asks her dad, Dad, where do human beings come from? Now, dad says, I think I've heard it said that human beings came from monkeys. And at some point, monkeys turned into people, and then here we are. So this girl is very confused now. She's got two different answers. So she goes back to her mother, and she says, Mom, I'm very confused. You told me that God created us. Dad told me that we came from monkeys. Which one is it? So the mom looks at the daughter and says, your dad was telling you where his side of the family came from. I was telling you where our side of the family came from. Now this family, like many of ours, is complicated. There's some issues going on. And as we dive into Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the fall series that we're in, we're in part three, we're going to look beneath the surface. We talked about the theme image for this series is the iceberg, right? Because only 10% of the iceberg is visible above the surface. The remaining 90% is unseen. And so to look beneath the surface today, our focus is on our families of origin and how they have shaped us, uh, our, our emotional lives but most importantly, our spiritual lives as well. And as we continue, I want to tell you a little bit about my family. I've told you about my kids and my wife, but I want to tell you a little bit about my family of origin. So we're going to put up a picture of my family. And now, if you ever meet my sister, don't tell her that I showed you guys this picture of her. This is my family here. That's my brother on the left. That's my mom. That's my dad. That's my sister. That's me. I was rocking the baggy jeans before they were in style. Uh, my brother, uh, my mom tried to match us, but my brother made the right fashion choice by not tucking it in and bringing his pants by the chest. But this is my family. One of the things you'll notice about my family is that we're not happy to be taking this picture. It's like we were at a funeral and then someone took a picture of us and here it is. This is the last thing we wanted to do today. But this picture summarizes the emotional state of our family. In fact, my dad putting his arm around me, it's the equivalent of him screaming, I love you. We weren't very affectionate. We didn't say I love you. We didn't hug a lot. I mean, things were just said and done. But a lot of emotions were left underneath the surface. And so for me growing up, that's the way I behaved. I felt like you couldn't show your emotions. People weren't meant to see your emotions. And then you couple with the f this with the fact that I grew up in New York where you're supposed to have a hard exterior and people don't show emotions. And I grew up as a teenager that was very emotionally stunted. In fact, I have, I've had to climb my way out of this emotional stuntedness and emotional unhealth. And now this picture was taken in 1997. It was a year later that my family w would migrate to the United States. And so I was an immigrant here in 1998. And here's the thing about an immigrant mentality. Many of your families migrated here from other parts of the world. But for me, being an immigrant, I felt it that I owed my parents. Right? So my parents risked their lives and risked their, uh, the safety and their comfort of their lives to move to another country where they didn't know the people, didn't know the culture, didn't know the context, they didn't even know English. So think about that being in your 40s and picking up your kids and moving them to another country. And that, that was then, uh, them then, but last week my parents were here, and after church they went to Bill Miller's, and then my dad went fishing off the coast in Galveston. And so they're very Texan now. But when they first came here, they didn't have any idea what America was like. And so for me, as their son, I felt like I owed them a lot. In fact, the mindset for me was that I need to perform and achieve because otherwise all the work that my parents did to get us here was for naught. 
and I've told, my, I've told myself, you got to make your parents proud because they did all of this for you. And there's a part of that that's honoring, right? Like for, for children to honor their parents and to, and to please them. But there's a larger part of that that led me to be performance-based in everything that I did. I don't know if you guys remember this growing up, but um, you guys ever remember the, um, the bumper stickers that people would put on cards that said, my child is an honor roll student at so-and-so, you know, such-and-such school. Well, it was my dad's dream for one of his kids to have, get this bumper sticker and for him to put it on our car. And I knew that my brother wasn't going to get it, and my sister... She was a little young, so it was on me to get the sticker. See, my dad would show up to church, and you know how Indians are, they're overachievers and education. So it's like you just see the bumper stickers all over the parking lot, and my dad would see and say, why can't you guys get the sticker? Everyone else is getting the sticker. And so I never really tried in school, but I felt like, okay, I need to try. And so there was one year I went hard, and I studied, and I knew that I had made the honor roll. And I don't know how it works now because my kids aren't school age, but if you remember back then, they would mail home your report cards. And so there's a lot of report cards missing in my house. And, but this time, because I was making the honor roll, I was waiting for it. I opened the mail. I got my report card, and there it is. My child is an honor roll student. And so I remember taking the sticker to my dad and giving him the report card and just bawling and crying because I felt like this weight was lifted off my shoulder. I felt like I had finally given him what he wanted this whole time. There was this performance-driven behavior and this approval that I sought out from my dad and that affected me emotionally, but it also affected me spiritually. It drove me, once I come to know Jesus and follow Jesus, to work hard for Jesus. You gotta prove yourself for Jesus. And I believed in grace, but a lot of times I lived this legalistic life and resting and not achieving and climbing the, the ladder was very difficult for me. So that's a little bit about my family, about all of us, your family. We all have complicated families. We all have um, different things that have affected who we are. And at times, even though I'm a follower of Jesus for many years, my Indian heritage seeps through and comes through the surface where I desire to achieve and seek the approval of others. And this is true for a lot of our ethnicities and family backgrounds. I love the way that Pete Scazzaro says it. He says, Jesus may be in our hearts, but grandpa is still in our bones. And some of us still have the tendency to behave because of our families of origin. But it takes hard work to look beneath the surface, and to go beneath the surface and to look back at our family histories and to see how you've been shaped so that you can know yourself. And this isn't just self-knowledge or self-help. Here's why looking at family matters. We're talking about families of origin because ultimately all of us who put our faith in Jesus now belong to his family the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, in his family, things work a little different than it did in our families of origin. Look what Paul writes to the Ephesian church, Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul is using the language of adoption to communicate so profound that we are in a new and permanent relationship, one in which we have a new father, one in which we behave differently, one in which we have a new inheritance, one in which we have new brothers and sisters. And Jesus shares the same sentiment. 
One of the passages in the Bible, New Testament, Jesus shares um, with his disciples, and he says, if anyone wants to follow me, and they love their parents or their children more than me, they are not worthy of being my disciple. And this is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. What Jesus was not saying was you shouldn't love or honor your parents. Now, if you read details in the life of Jesus, you'll see how Jesus wanted to honor even his own parents. In fact, when Jesus goes on the cross, he appoints John to take care of his mother while he's suffering and on the cross. So it's not that Jesus wants us to hate our families. What Jesus is saying is when you come to be my follower and disciple, there is this new family that you enter into, this new way of living. And if you get it twisted, then you might not know what it means to truly follow me. And so when we look beneath the surface... What we're actually doing when we look at our families of origin is how they have shaped us and what we need to put off. And this is called discipleship. Look how Pete Scazzaro says this. Discipleship then is the putting off of the sinful patterns and habits of our families of origin and being transformed to live as members of Christ's family. Now whether you realize it or not, you are the beneficiary of generational patterns. Whether good or bad, your grandma just didn't pass off her old couch to you. There are some patterns that may have been passed off to you. We even find this in families in the Bible. If we just look at the family of Abraham, here are some patterns that we identify in Abraham's family. Number one, we identify a pattern of lying. Abraham lied twice to his wife uh, about his wife Sarah. Then Abraham's son Isaac, his marriage to Rebekah was characterized by lies. And then his son Isaac lied to almost everyone. His name literally meant deceiver. Then 10 of his children, which we'll find out later today, lied and kept a family secret for more than 10 years, a pattern of lying generation to generation. There's a pattern of showing favoritism. Abraham showed favoritism to his children. Isaac, his son, favored Esau. His son Jacob favored Joseph and then eventually Benjamin. You also find a pattern of marital issues. Abraham had a child out of wedlock with Hagar, someone other than his wife. And then Isaac, his son, was in a horrible relationship with Rebekah. And then Jacob, his son, had two wives and two concubines. And this is just the family of Abraham. I share that because oftentimes we underestimate the deep imprint our families of origin have had on who we are and how God calls us to a new way of living. For many of us, we've been in great families. So this is not about looking back and nitpicking our families of origin. I love my family, but at the same time, this does not diminish the unspoken rules that I've assumed that I had to follow. So today, for many of us, we're going to look back at our families of origin. And for some of us who are shaping our own families, we might be looking at how we might be shaping our families to behave in a way that reflects our family values and not the values of the family of Christ. So we're going to look at the life of a man in the Bible. The last few weeks, you guys know, we looked at Saul, who was emotionally unstable. Last week, we looked at David, who was stable and rose above the pressures that he faced. Today, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. And we'll be in the book of Genesis. And a quarter of the book of Genesis is about Joseph's life. And what happens in Joseph's life is we find out about him at the age of 17. And Genesis covers the story all the way to the point where he, when he dies. Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob out of 12 sons. So he's one of the younger sons of Joseph. He had 11 brothers. And they were a complex, blended family. So I mentioned earlier, Jacob, who's Joseph's father, Jacob had two wives and two concubines. 
And he lived with his two wives and his two concubines and his 12 children all in the same house. Talk about a complex, blended family. Joseph happened to be the favorite child of his dad, Jacob, and his brothers hated him for it. Look what we find out. We pick it up in Genesis chapter 37. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He was dad's favorite, and they hated him for it. And then Joseph has this dream, and it made them hate him even more. And here's why. Here's what this dream, uh, uh, here's how this dream goes. He said to them, verse 6, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up, arose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he had said. He has this dream that they're out on the field, and then each of them would have this bunch of grain stalks. And his would stand up, and theirs would surround him and bow down to him. And they hated him for it. You can't blame him. He's 17. He's a little arrogant. He's his dad's favorite. He has this dream that his brothers are going to bow down to him. So he goes out of his way to share and shares it with them. It's probably not something you want to share to your brothers. And here's this, what we learn from this little part of Joseph's story. There are some things that are between you and God. Not everyone can handle what God might be doing in and through you. In fact, they might hate you for it. So some things are between you and God because there is a specific time and purpose he will accomplish what he has for you in your life. And this hatred that Joseph's brothers have for him, it gets so bad. It gets so bad to the point that they're like, we need to get rid of this kid. He's a problem child. So they... Fake his murder, they tell his dad, they tell their dad that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. They cover up that they had sold him to slavery. They allowed him to enter the hands of these human traffickers that would traffic him to Egypt, hoping that they would never hear from him again. This is what you call an emotionally unhealthy and unstable family. Remember I mentioned earlier, of the generational patterns in Joseph's family, of his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather all in, engaging in lying and telling half-truths and jealousy. Here's Joseph's kids engaging in the same behavior. Joseph would be a slave in Egypt, and his luck turns for the worst as he's in Egypt. What happens is he has a boss in Egypt, and his name is Potiphar, and Potiphar's out of town, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. And Joseph says, how can I do such a thing against God? She gets so upset that he turned her down that she accuses him of rape because of her position of power. And then Joseph ends up being thrown in prison for over 10 years. And think about the life of Joseph. Things just kept getting worse and worse for him. Here's a young man who had his dad's blessing. He was his dad's favorite. His dad made him a custom coat even. And he has these dreams about God, how God might use him. At an early age, and it feels like all of it has just been thrown away because of family issues. Joseph could have turned his back on God. Joseph could have continued the patterns that he witnessed and experienced. Instead, we find out that in the thick of it, in the mud, in the gutter, Joseph 
He stays with God. Here's what you find, Genesis 39, verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. God was with Joseph, and Joseph was with God. And so what happens is that God ends up granting Joseph favor in the prison system. So the warden of the prison system puts Joseph in charge of caring for all the prisoners. And then one day, Joseph would meet two of the top officials of Pharaoh in prison. And he asked them, why are you guys here? You guys are top officials. And they tell him, well, Pharaoh had this dream, and no one can interpret it, and we tried to, it didn't work out, and so he threw us here. And then they have dreams, and Joseph ends up interpreting their dreams. And so time goes by, and they get out of prison. Years go by. Pharaoh ends up having these dreams that are tormenting him, and he asks his top officials, how do you interpret these dreams? And they say, well, there's a guy in prison that helped us. Maybe he can help you. And so Pharaoh summons Joseph. Joseph stands before Pharaoh, and he interprets his dream. And here's what happens. Here's what Pharaoh tells him. Genesis 41, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Look at Joseph. His life is turned upside down. He's the second in command in Egypt. Now, if you read the book of Genesis, you know the story. And I encourage you to go and read some of the details of the story. But here's what we want to look at this morning. Joseph has made it. He's successful. He's achieved. He's overcome all odds. But at the same time, Joseph has been handed a script to follow. And here's what I mean by that. If you know in Hollywood when actors are trying to take on new roles and new movies and new TV shows, what they do first and foremost is they read the scripts. And they read the script and they see the lines that they're going to say and the parts that they're going to play and they agree to taking on this role. And not all of us are handed scripts in life from our families of origin. And all of us have the ability to follow that script or rewrite the script through what God is doing in and through our lives. Here's what Joseph's script, for example, could have looked like. Joseph now, as the second in command in Egypt, could have believed what he saw in the script. Joseph, your family hated you because you were your dad's favorite. So that means people will never love you for who you are. Joseph, your family sold you to slavery. Think about that. Your family sold you to slavery. So that means people are just going to betray you for the rest of your life. Stay away from people. Joseph, your own brothers lied to your dad. Your brothers lied to your dad. So how can you trust anyone that you encounter in life? Joseph, your boss's wife accused you of rape when you were innocent. After your brothers sold you to slavery, all these bad things keep happening to you. Maybe there's something wrong with you, Joseph. Maybe it's you. Every time you get around new people, stuff goes wrong. Joseph, you were thrown in prison with murderers and thieves. Maybe you're just like one of them. Maybe that's who you are. What I love about the story of Joseph, though, is that he rewrites his script, not on his own, but through a life of being with God. I want to look at what Pete Scazzaro said. We mentioned this earlier. Discipleship, then, is the putting off of the patterns and habits of our families of origin and being transformed to live as members of Christ's family. And so we're going to look at three ways that Joseph rewrote the script of his life and how he overcame the generational patterns 
that he experienced and saw in his family. The first thing that Joseph does is Joseph addresses his pain. Now the story continues. Joseph is in charge, and what happens is that there is a famine that has hit the land. Now because God has put Joseph in charge, Joseph prospers. And because Joseph prospers, Egypt prospers. And Egypt is prospering, but all the nations around Egypt, they're going through this famine. And so people are coming from all over the earth to get food from the Egyptians because Joseph was in charge. And what happens is that his dad and his brothers are feeling the effects of this famine. So his dad tells his brothers, go to Egypt and find food. They have no idea where Joseph is. And what happens is that Joseph recognizes his brothers in Egypt. And he has a hard time revealing himself to them. And it spans a few chapters, but finally, Joseph decides, I can't do this anymore. I need to tell my family what they've done to me, and I need to reveal to them who I am now. Here's what happens, Genesis chapter 45. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. We see as Joseph, he weeps so loudly that the Egyptians hear him and even Pharaoh hears him. He does not minimize or rationalize the painful years that he experiences at the hand of his brothers. This was Joseph's first step of healing and rewriting the script. Out of his honest grieving of his pain, he was able to rewrite the script. Joseph doesn't, address, Joseph doesn't ignore the pain. Joseph addresses the pain. Joseph doesn't become numb to the emotions of what he faced, but he grieves over it. Sometimes you and I, we're guilty of stifling real emotions because we just don't want to deal with it. We're stifling real emotions because we want to appear put together. It's not only okay for us to address and grieve and face our emotions, but it's a necessary part of our healing and of our rewriting of the script. Take a look at the Psalms. Half of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament or Psalms of grief that's express, expressions of grief. And Joseph would always remember his pain. He addresses it. It's the reason why he's able to move on. Joseph would give his two children names that reflected his pain and sadness. His first son was named Manasseh, from the Hebrew word for forget, because God had enabled him to forget all of his troubles. His second child was named Ephraim, from the Hebrew word for fruitful, because God had made him fruitful in his new land of suffering. Joseph didn't ignore his emotions. He addressed it. He grieved over it. He even named his sons after what he went through so that he can recognize that, yes, he went through it, but God had kept him through it as well. Addressing our pain and the emotional damage and the baggage that we've been handed from others in our lives is the first step to healing and rewriting the script. The second way that Joseph rewrites the script, Joseph knew that God meant it for good. That God meant his situation for good. What happens in the story 
is that Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Pharaoh finds out, oh, Joseph, you had brothers, you have a family. And so Pharaoh says, you should go and bring your family to Egypt. They'll be fine here. He takes care of them. Joseph bring, jo brings his dad back home. There's this whole family reunion that happens. But years later, Joseph's father, Jacob, would pass away. Now, here's the thing. His brothers thought that the only reason that Joseph had not done anything to them was because dad was alive. And so as soon as Jacob passes away, the Bible says that his brothers were terrified and afraid of what Joseph would now do. And here's how Joseph responds, Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Worship team, you guys can come on up as I get ready to wrap up. I love what Joseph says here. You intended to harm me, but God, he meant it for good. The second way that Joseph rewrites the script is by surrendering his life plan to God's. Joseph knew that God meant it for good. What he says here is so theologically rich and so practically true for those of us who've put our faith in God. You've intended it for harm, but God has intended it and meant it for good. Just take a moment to think about Joseph's life. Joseph, he went through betrayal. He went through pain. He went through rejection. He went through accusations. He went through imprisonment. And while he was going through it all, he said that God has a plan for me. In fact, when his brothers first show up and they say, we are sorry, he says, you thought you were sending me to Egypt. But it was actually God that was sending me to Egypt. Joseph had been with God. He had been with God when he saw the dreams at the age of 17. He had been with God when his brother sold him to slavery as he's riding to Egypt. He was with God when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He was with God in the prison. He was with God at the height of success while God is using him. And because he had been with God, a life that could have been devastated and destroyed because of family patterns and habits was a life that now pointed people to the faithfulness of God. Joseph said, when you thought you were hurting me, God was protecting me. When you thought you'd get rid of me, God was elevating me. When you thought that Pharaoh would make me a slave, he put me second in command. What you meant for harm, God meant for good. We see it repeatedly over the last few weeks. People that have been with God, their doing for God was sustained out of a life of being with God. Many of us have been handed scripts in life that we just follow, patterns that we just follow. For some of us, your parents, every time they get into an argument with a friend or family member, they cut them off. And you've seen that. So your script in life is that that's how adult relationships work. You can't get into close relationships with other people as adults. For others of you, your family was messed up. There were some issues that were going on. But every time you went to church, they put their suit on, had the nice dress on, they smiled. And so the script that you've been handed is that our issues are supposed to be kept a secret and no one else can know about it. 
Some of you have been handed a script that says, once your kids turn 18 and hit college, you're not going to have a close relationship with them because that's what happened with your parents and your grandparents. We're all handed scripts in life. Some of you grew up, unfortunately, in homes with abuse, probably because they grew up in a home where they faced it. And your script is that it's normal. This is how it is. Some of you feel that only when you achieve will others love you. We've all been handed different scripts. I don't know what your script is. But there comes a point where we have to stop reading the scripts that have been handed to us. And I'm not saying the pain isn't real or the baggage isn't real. We looked at how Joseph addresses it. All of it is real. But at some point, when we put our faith in God, at some point, we can weigh the baggage, the harm that's been done to us, the stuff that we faced in life. At some point, we look at that, and we have to have the faith that Joseph has that rises above it and says, all of this stuff was meant to harm me. The enemy tried to harm me. People in my life tried to harm me. My neighbors tried to harm me. My friends tried to harm me. My family tried to harm me. All of this was meant to harm me, but I put my faith in a God who is greater than the greatest pain that I could ever face. I put my faith in a God who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to, my, called according to his purpose. I put my faith in a God who meant it for good. For some of us, we got to rip apart the scripts that have been handed to us. Say, this is it. I can address it. I can grieve over it. I can acknowledge it. But there is something greater that God has for me. Because I serve and believe in a God of redemption, of reconciliation, a God that turns things around, a God that makes the mess into the beautiful. That's why the Apostle Paul says, we're pressed from every side but not crushed. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Yes, the enemy and people can keep coming after me over and over, and the reality is there, and I feel it, and I see it, and I've seen it harm me, but I believe in a God that does not leave me broken and destroyed. But because of the finished work of Jesus, I am a new creation. I no longer follow the scripts that have been handed to me. That's why I love about the story of Joseph. He rewrites the script that had been handed to him because he believed that God meant it for good. Here's the third thing that Joseph does real quick. Joseph partners with God to be a blessing. Now, we can address our pain. That's practical. We grieve and we bring it to God. We sit with that and allow God to heal us. We can also understand that God meant it for good, that God can use the brokenness in our life and make it beautiful. God can take the shattered pieces and put it back together, that we don't have to be defined by our past. But there is one more step that many of us have to take, and that is turning and facing the accuser, the people that meant to harm us. And we have two options. See, Joseph could have looked at his brothers, said, dad's gone, I'm second in charge. You guys sold me to slavery. And because of that, I was accused. Because of you, I was in prison for 10 years. It's time for me to put you in prison. Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph partners with God 
And that doesn't just happen automatically. Look what happens. Joseph tells his brothers who are terrified, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This doesn't come up automatically. This takes the place of having great emotional and spiritual stability. Joseph was able to do this when he faced his brothers that intended to harm him because he had been with God since being a young boy. He had been with God. He had been with God. And out of a life of being with God, it sustained him for when he faced things in life. All of us have the option to be a burden to the people that have hurt us or to be a blessing. And it's going to be a process. It doesn't happen over time. It's difficult to do. But to be emotionally healthy, to go beneath the surface, we address it. We know that God can turn it to good. And we show them the same kindness that God has shown to each and every single one of us. Joseph's willingness to go back and look at the patterns of his family and choose to write things differently. It blessed a whole nation. It was because of Joseph that there was no famine in the land. It was because of Joseph that lives were saved. Imagine if Joseph ran the other way. Imagine what God could do with each and every one of us who take the patterns and the baggage that we've been handed and we allow God to turn it to good. What would our church look like? What would your families look like? What would your relationship with your kids look like? What would it look like for us to be emotionally healthy knowing that God is at work in and through us to do something better than we could have ever imagined? That's the challenge. That's the encouragement for us this morning. Amen. Let me pray for us as we close. God, we thank you that you're a good God. Despite what happens in a broken world, you're a God that can turn it around. You're a God that can pick us up out of the mud and place our feet on solid ground. You're the God that when it feels like what has happened to us, what has been done to us, has defined us forever, you're a God of second So I pray this morning that all of us will go beneath the surface. In fact, this morning, I want us to take a moment just to sit. Would you allow, invite God to meet you beneath the surface? Whatever feelings have surfaced, whatever emotions have surfaced, whatever memories have surfaced, whatever angst, pain, frustration, anger has surfaced, to allow the Holy Spirit to work beneath the surface to bring healing. I pray for those who are hurting this morning. God, you know every hair on our head. You see every tear that we cry. 
You're a God who cares about the parts of our lives that we often keep from other people. We thank you that as we enter your family, we can come to you as our heavenly Father, a good Father. Would you allow some of the folks in this room, Jesus, Holy Spirit, to take that next step in approaching you? Pray for those who might still be stifling the emotions. I'm good. I don't need to address it. It's okay. I've moved on. To help them to see it's not about living and thriving in the emotions, but surrendering them to you and knowing that you meet us there. That there is a place where our grief expressed is an opportunity for your power to work in our lives. you break down hard hearts and soften so that you can do deep work, work that will help us flourish, work that will help us to be who you've called us to be. Would you meet us this week? Would you help each and every single one of us to just take a next step? Maybe even if it's just acknowledging the pain, the patterns. And all this so that we can do what you called us to. And the freedom that your spirit gives us to love God and to love the people around us. We thank you for your God who turns things around. It's in your precious name we pray. And the church said, amen.